We bring you two readings this morning. The first is a little story about Nasruddin, the trickster from the Sufi tradition. Nasruddin was called to judge the complaint of one neighbor against another. After the plaintiff made their case, Nasruddin said, that seems right to me. After the defense made their case and finished, he said, that seems right to me. Outraged, the concerned parties demanded a decision. You must do better than that, they protested. Only a terrible judge would agree with both sides. Nasruddin replied, that seems right to me. Our second reading is from Annie Dillard. I am a frayed and nibbled survivor in a fallen world, and I am getting along. I am not washed and beautiful, in control of a shining world in which everything fits, but instead am wondering about a splintered wreck I've come to care for, whose scarred creatures are my dearest companions and whose beauty shines not in its imperfections, but overwhelmingly in spite of them. I'm going to start with a poem by Stephen Dunn. It's called At the Smithville Methodist Church. It was supposed to be arts and crafts for a week, but when she came home with the Jesus Saves button... We knew what art was up, what ancient craft. She liked her little friends. She liked the songs they sang when they weren't twisting and folding paper into dolls. What could be so bad? Jesus had been a good man, and putting faith in good men was what we had to do to stay this side of cynicism, that other sadness. Okay, we said, one week But when she came home singing, Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so, it was time to talk. Could we say, Jesus doesn't love you? Could I tell her the Bible is a great book certain people use to make you feel bad? We sent her back without a word. It had been so long since we believed, so long since we needed Jesus as our nemesis and friend that we thought he was sufficiently dead that our children would think of him like Lincoln or Thomas Jefferson. Soon it became clear to us you can't teach disbelief to a child. Only wonderful stories and we hadn't a story nearly as good. On parents night There were the arts and crafts all spread out like appetizers. Then we took our seats in the church, and the children sang a song about the ark and hallelujah, and one in which they had to jump up and down for Jesus. I can't remember ever feeling so uncertain about what's comic and what's serious. Evolution is magical but devoid of heroes. You can't say to your child, evolution loves you. The story stinks of extinction. And nothing exciting happens for centuries. I didn't have a wonderful story for my child, and she was beaming. All the way home in the car, she sang the songs, occasionally standing up for Jesus. There was nothing 
to do but drive, ride it out, sing along in silence. <laughs> Living in the holy tension. This morning, the topic is not Jesus versus evolution. I don't believe they're in conflict. Or even the challenges of parenting. I offer this poem to introduce our theme for March, Living in the Holy Tension. And to invite us to wonder about what's going on inside this dad. And to maybe wonder how does the story unfold from here. Okay, he says, one week. But when she came home singing, Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so, it was time to talk. We can tell something has awakened in dad now. He's watching. He's paying attention. He's tuned in. He's aware of his daughter's innocent exuberance and the, the social and songful benefits of Bible camp. And he's worried about the underlying institutional message, the message on the button. He's aware of the magnetic power of that old Jesus story. And he knows what groups sometimes do with that story. He's aware of his cynical tendencies. And he wants to honor his own valid experience of the world. All of this. So there, Dad sits smack in the middle of multiple truths, and he's in the driver's seat. He's the guy behind the wheel. And we've been there or somewhere very like it, and we wish him well. <laughs> he's living in the holy tension. For now, he's silent. He can't help singing inside. You want to sing with your daughter, especially when the tune is so familiar. We hope he'll be attentive to the situation, not too pushy. We hope he'll keep listening to himself and his child and keep asking, who is she, who am I, who are we? As days go by, the questions may deepen. There will be a time to act. Maybe dad and his partner will talk with their friends. Maybe they'll do some online church research. Maybe they'll find our website and show up here one day. Maybe they did and you're out there. <laughs> Are you? <laughs> I offer this poem today not because our topic is Jesus or evolution or even parenting, but to lift up this dance we're always doing in time and space, we two-legged humans. We're always living in the tension. That's what life is. Our worship planning team, Justin and Ruth and Ralph and John and I, named this truth about holy tension. We named this truth recently in our brainstorming, and we caught hold of it and began to list some of the polarities we're always moving between and among, weaving in and out, do-si-do and back and forth. We live in the interplay between our individual wishes and the good of the group, between what is and what could be, between inward spirituality and out-there activism, between discipline and freedom, routine and spontaneity. We live in the tension between 
wanting to change and clinging to the same old. Writer Anne Lamott says, everything I let go of has claw marks on it. (laughs) We live in the tension of being alive and knowing we'll die. That's rather a big one. Holy tension. What will we do with our one wild and precious life? One of the artists on our worship team, Ruth McKenzie, said in our planning meeting, in the tension is where creativity lives. That says it so beautifully. Tension is the stuff of creativity. It's what liberal theologian Henry Nelson Wyman was talking about when he defined God as creative interchange, capital C, capital I, creative interchange. God is not this or that. God is what emerges between in the relationship. God is the between that connects. We live in the tension all the time between past and future, endings and beginnings, hello and goodbye, For instance, look where we are, you and I. In June, I'll retire from full-time parish ministry after 15 years of gladly and imperfectly serving you. I'm still here, but not for long. We're on the verge of goodbye, and you're on the verge of saying hello to the Reverend Jen Crow, who will arrive this summer and serve you, not in this role exactly, the one I've had, but as Minister of Program Life. She, Jen, is a great and gifted minister and leader and organizer and pastor, and you are blessed indeed. And so is she to be with you and serve you. Today, I have three things to say about this departure process, this transition, this good goodbye, as we're calling it, that you and I are moving into. First, there is a lot to feel, and I mean to feel as much as I can. Stand right here in the weeks ahead. Stand in the holy tension and let it flow. Experience it all. My sorrow At parting, my certainty that the timing is perfect, my confidence that we're moving into our futures as we should, my gratitude for each day with you, my gratitude for the leadership and the person of your senior minister, Justin, and for Jen Crow, who she is and what she'll bring. The truth is I can't imagine how any of this could have worked out any better, and that is something to be able to say. And it is a truckload of holy tension. (laughs) Second, I have more I want to say about our good goodbye, and I will say it. I'll preach twice more after today, once in April, once in May. In April, I'll offer some reflections on loss and love and legacy and how It's all practice as we move around this big old cycle of life. In May, I'm thinking it will just be a celebration of gathering of favorite stories, mine and yours. 
Third, I want to recognize that we are all new at this, this creating a good goodbye. It's been a few decades since you've had one. And I have never done this before, said goodbye after 15 years to a congregation I love. There's no exact template for the process. As we move toward this juncture, we make it up as we go, of course. I know we'll do our best, and I will tell you right now, and this is a relief, we won't do this perfectly. We will overlook a thing or few, uh, and we will have some loose ends. It's life, so it's bound to be untidy. But it will be honest and loving, and that will be our success. Back in my seminary years, I was driving away from a retreat center when one of my tires went flat. I rolled into the nearby service station, and they found two fork tines in my left rear tire. I had punctured my tire driving over a fork in the road. I've always been interested in our forks in the road. (laughs) How we know which way to go. How we listen for the guide. How we discern what's ours to do, ours to choose. How we know when it's ours to say yes or no and when the time is right. When I was a very small child, my father a newspaper man in my hometown, one evening at the dinner table, Dad reported something that happened to him that day. I remember it like this. I was very young. That day, he said, he had stopped into a little diner for a quick lunch, a place he didn't frequent around the block from his office. He took a seat on a stool at one end of the counter and picked up a menu and started to look it over. Then he looked down the counter, and at the other end he saw one of the big wheels in town with two first names. We'll call him Henry Howard. Someone Dad didn't know personally, but who owned a couple of city blocks in a bank. My father noticed that Mr. Howard was eating a bowl of chili for lunch. Dad thought, well, if Henry Howard is eating chili here, the chili must be good. So Dad ordered chili, and it arrived, and he tasted it, and it was awful. Then Dad took a closer look at the man at the end of the counter and saw it wasn't Henry Howard after all. (laughs) It's interesting how that little story stuck with me when so much else didn't. There was some kind of lesson in there. (laughs) Something about looking outside yourself, looking to an illusion, in fact, for the answer to your hunger. What you might get is a bowl of bad chili. (laughs) So it was a preview of things to come. My interest still is in how we make our choices from any of life's menus how we learn from the taste of our experience. 
and how we move through or move with the holy tension and arrive at insight and some new, new clarity, just enough, just for now. And I have listened to your stories, and I have heard you describe how sometimes clarity arrives slowly, quietly, drop by drop till the cup is full and you just lift it and drink it. Sometimes a revelation will burst in, in the night, maybe in a dream. Sometimes you have an arduous trek across a hot and thorny, prickly desert on your way to that yes or that no that will be your shade. Will I choose this college or the other one? This job or that one? Shall I commit to this partner? Shall we have a child? Adopt? Will I stay home or find daycare? Keep my home or move to assisted living? Chemotherapy or hospice? Resuscitate or do not resuscitate? The choosing doesn't end till the end. And the choosing gets more complex when we're choosing on behalf of the group. Today, March 4th, is the 147th anniversary of President Lincoln's second inaugural address. That's the one he delivered when the Civil War was nearly over and the North was confident, exuberant. They were jumping up and down for victory. In that second inaugural address, Lincoln said, that one party would make war rather than let the nation survive and the other would accept war rather than let it perish. Both read the same Bible and pray to the same God. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes. Let us not judge that we be not judged. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on. Then he goes on to say that we will tend to the widows and the orphans and will do our best to bind up the wounds from this devastation. At the reception... After the speech, Lincoln asked the great black orator, Frederick Douglass, what he thought of the address, and Douglass said, Mr. President, that was a sacred effort. That was a sacred effort. But the crowd had been unimpressed, even disappointed. They wanted to hear about triumph. They didn't really want to hear about living in the holy tension. But that's where Lincoln was living most of the time. In a private meditation, he wrote, In great contests, each party claims to act in accordance with the will of God. Both may be, and one must be, wrong. God cannot be for and against the same thing at the same time. In the present civil war, it is quite possible that God's purpose is something different from the purpose of either party, end of quote. On the one hand, he recognized our human limits. On the other hand, he trusted that a larger 
wisdom was at work. I think of that old rabbinic saying about the two pockets each of us has in our coat. In one pocket are the words, I am but dust and ashes. In the other pocket, the words, for me, the world was created. We reach into one pocket or the other according to our needs. Lincoln reached into both pockets at once and went forward prayerfully. Or I think of the common barn owl and its remarkable hearing. Its hearing is so acute, it can locate and strike its prey in total darkness. The owl hears so well because its ears are asymmetrical. The right ear is lower and tilted upward, and the left ear is higher and tilted down. And when a mouse is running through the grass beneath a perched owl, the owl can tell where it is within a ten millionth of a second. If the mouse moves closer to the owl, its sound gets louder in the owl's left ear. If the mouse moves away from the owl, the sound gets louder in the right ear. The owl moves its head till the sound is equal in both ears, then it strikes and hits. Someone has studied this. (laughs) When an owl's right ear is blocked, it strikes short and to the left. When its left ear is blocked, it strikes far and to the right. It needs both ears to make it in the world. As for Lincoln, his two spiritual ears picked up different essential messages. His left ear picked up on our human limits. We have partial knowledge. We can easily be wrong. Lincoln knew that both North and South were implicated in slavery. He understood that people are divided inside. The Mason-Dixon line runs right across our hearts and minds. If Lincoln's left ear picked up our limits, his right one listened for something else. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right. His right ear was tilted up to hear the wisdom that comes to us from beyond our limits. The right ear listens for guidance from a place beyond our divisions and oppositions in that place. We are all together. Like barn owls, we need both ears. If we block the ear that hears our limits, we may think everything we hear is God's truth. We will strike far and to the right. If we block the ear that listens for the voice of the spirit of life and universal love, we may think wisdom is nowhere to be found. We'll strike short and to the left. When we listen with both ears, what do we get? Perfection? Hardly. An easy road? A smooth ride? Never. Maybe what we get is the capacity to be faithful. This is our sacred effort, the effort to be faithful 
in our lives, in our lifetime, in the midst of the tension, to give it our holy, creative, best, sacred effort. I know the word faith means different things to different people. I'll tell you what I mean. I mean what the elderly Quaker man must have been a meaningful gesture. I, the, the ringer fell. <clears throat> I mean what the elderly Quaker man meant when he spoke out of the silence in one of the first Quaker meetings I ever attended. I was an 18-year-old, just arrived at my Quaker college. This way of worshiping together in stillness was strange and new to me. Out of the group silence, this white-haired professor slowly stood up and he said one sentence. He said, faith is not belief in spite of evidence, but life in spite of consequence. Then he slowly sat. Faith is not belief in spite of evidence, but life in spite of consequence. With those words, he pretty much summarized the liberal religious way. At the time, I didn't know that's what he'd done, but I knew enough to say in my heart, Amen. What I'm coming around to is why we're here. I mean, together here. We're here out of a sacred effort to not be in denial about the holy tensions we live in, but to live in them, to welcome them, to work with them, people. We don't have to drive along in silence by ourselves. We're in a creative moment right now that's never been before. Individually and collectively, each fork in our road is utterly unique, as is the road itself. Traveler, there is no path, wrote poet Antonio Machado. Paths are made by walking. So we may as well practice. Blessed be and amen. Amen.